coaching is changing. No more gatekeepers. No more barriers. No one standing between you and your readers. Do you want to make a living from your writing? Join indie bestseller Mark Dawson and James Blatch as they shine a light on the secrets of self-publishing success. This is The Self-Publishing Show. There's never been a better time to be a writer. Hello and welcome. It is The Self-Publishing Show with me, James Blatch. And me, Mark Dawson. We are fresh back from Vegas, crazy Vegas, where the Grand Prix starts uh, tomorrow for us. Yesterday, if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, the Grand Prix meeting. Um, uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, anyway, we had a, a brilliant uh, 20 books, the final, the last hurrah, the last dance of uh, 20 books, Vegas, because the conference uh, in that current form is ending. And they revealed the new name for the conference, which is author nation which is uh, my preferred conference conferency face yes um but yeah that didn't uh, that didn't win the ballot um but yeah author nation i think is a, is a pretty good name i think um yeah simple that does what it says in the tin um yeah and yeah joe solari who is a friend of ours who uh, is taking over the running of the conference from craig martell and um yeah and craig Craig's done a fantastic job for the last what, six, seven years um, and mm. has definitely earned the uh, right to step away and hand it over to, to Joe, who has some interesting ideas and um, announced Kevin Smith will be a, um, a the keynote speaker next year, which is an interesting choice. Someone Silent, Silent Bob. Silent Bob, exactly. Yeah, I did actually say to Lucy um, when I came back, Kevin Smith speaking next year, and she, and she was like, who? So that's, yeah. that's interesting because, I, I mean, I, I think... Um, I think a lot I mean, of people in the room know who he is. We are the right demographic for it, but I don't think my kids would know who he is and my dad wouldn't know who he is. But Your dad, definitely. Your dad's in his 90s, so he's not, he's not likely to yeah. know who Silent Bob is. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I love... I mean, I think he's a great filmmaker. I love Clark's. I remember mm. watching that black and white mm. film 25 Amazing, years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting choice. I, I, I don't think... I think he's got lots of interesting things to say. Um is he a perfect oh, well, choice for an he, author conference? It's hard one to say. I, I'd certainly go and listen yeah, to him. Yeah, in terms of creativity, as a creative, he has lots yeah, of things to yeah. say. Um, yeah, you probably won't remember when we were newbies at the uh, BBFC, we had a room at the end of the building, and the six of us inhabited about the long-winded training program, which mm. went on for about four months. But on the, on the door was a poster saying, um, with no power comes no responsibility. And that is a Kevin Smith yeah. quote yeah. from one of his films. Um, anyway, yes. So, so that was Vegas. Uh, we'll perhaps give a little bit of a nod to one or two of the sessions, the things we learned from that um, uh, as we go through the next few weeks. But before we do anything else, I think we have some new Patreon listeners to welcome to the show, Marcus. Yeah, we do. We have AJ Wyatt, um, Con and Danny. No address for any of, of the three, um, but we um, are very grateful for them supporting the show on Patreon. Does help us keep the lights on um and keeps james in expensive kit um yes well look look at my expensive kit um yes. although i have noticed mine's quite dirty outside oh yes is a little uh, bit, yeah yes i'll hold that there but this is the um this is the live hoodie and the reason i'm modeling it today is because um in a caref carefully crafted giveaway in other words we found a box of 10 of these and uh, we need to give them away. We've decided that the next 10 people who sign up for the conference 
are going to get a free hoodie sent to them wherever you are in the world. And it'll be one of these lovely warm hoodies just as we go into winter if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Of course, you might be in the South. Just put it in the cupboard for a year, uh, for six months. Um, yeah, so you don't need to do anything else apart from just sign up to the conference. Um, and if you want to do that, yeah, this is our conference we're talking about, which is in June in London, uh, 2024, June 25th, 26th, uh, the second largest indie conference in the world and the largest in Europe. And that is going to be available to you at selfpublishingformula.com forward slash SPS live. So the next 10 people who sign up will get a hoodie sent to them that you can wear to the conference if you like, although it is June and hopefully it'll be nice and warm in June. Um, yes, and uh, one more thing to say is that we are in the last few days of self-publishing Launchpad. Uh, so this is the foundation course, a uh, very detailed, uh, big foundation course of how to set yourself up for success as an indie writer. Uh, it's what we do best. These are online courses and uh, that is going to be available until Wednesday. If you go to selfpublishingformula.com forward slash launchpad, uh, you can read all about it, find out what's in the course and sign up for that. And of course, with all our courses, there's a 30-day, no questions asked, uh, money-back guarantee. Um, yeah, and we had a good webinar during the week, which we haven't had yet, but is going to be a good webinar on AI. And of course, AI was one of the many topics that um, was floating around uh, in abundance at 20 Books Vegas. Uh, I do I do feel, Mark, that in six months, it's gone from this highly controversial hot topic to much, much less controversial. I mean, I didn't really feel much anti. There was one speaker who put a, um, who put a, a slide up saying... Uh, AI is the enemy and you must never touch it. Was it John and Truby, wasn't it? Yeah, it was I, John Truby. And people left the room and everyone else just rolled their eyes. I mean, I felt that the prevailing wind now is how do we use it ethically and effectively, not should we use it? Um, although there's some diehards, but that feels to me like the way that's gone. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I And I had spoke to Steph, actually met Steph Pajonas for the first time, um, who is kind of set up at least as far as i know the biggest um author ai facebook group um, which i think is called ai for authors or something along those lines um seven or eight thousand people in that in that group now and obviously that's um that's a very pro group uh, as you'd expect but i mean she did say to me she's had death threats and things um which is just unbelievably stupid isn't it and yeah. um, elizabeth ann west also is is a fairly uh has been banging the ai drum for a couple of years now um yeah and i mean she's she's reports she's reported similar kind of experience before so I, I mean i hope that that kind of nonsense is calming down now uh, i mean there are still there are still lots of questions that need to be answered i mean i'm i, I think you shouldn't ignore the fact that there are some fairly big court cases that are still to be decided and that could change everything um but i think you're probably right that the the temperature has come down a little bit um but you know it is it is a, it's a it is still a hot topic no question about that yeah um and it is uh, it is one that people want to learn about so obviously if you're in our ads for authors program you get ai marketing for authors and we are going to make it available in the next few weeks for people who just want to do that module on its own okay i think it is time for us to move on to our webinar uh, sorry to our webinar to our interview um we actually have uh, an australian but we're going to be talking a lot about africa so joe this is the second author we've had who is not african but is slightly obsessed with the continent of africa and 
Uh, Tony Park very much falls into that that category. I suppose in the tradition of Wilbur Smith, uh, somebody who writes his book set there. And Tony, although he's Australian, lives in Australia, actually lives in Africa for part of the year as well. So he's he's going to talk to us about the importance of of researching your settings and making the setting an important part of your uh, your book. And we know whether you're writing regional crime or Cold War thrillers, in my case, that the setting is a key part of it and getting that right is very important. It's one of the reasons people choose to read those particular books. Uh, Tony also talks about researching criminal activities and areas of the continent that he can't reach and the importance of representing places and people accurately um, and not pulling readers out of the story. So that is Tony Park, Australian with an African bent. Uh, Here he is, and Mark and I will be back for a quick chat at the end of the interview. This is The Self-Publishing Show. There's never been a better time to be a writer. Tony Park, welcome to The Self-Publishing Show. Uh, Joining us from Africa, I think probably South Africa. Tony, is that right? Correct, yes. South Africa on the edge of the Kruger National Park in South Africa. Wow, what a fabulous place. I have been there a long time ago, 1990, I think I went. Um, but uh, yes, we go to safari parks in the UK, and I didn't realize till I got there, Kruger is the size of Wales. It's a huge area. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. And that blows a lot of people away when they first visit, just the sheer scale of the place. Yeah, I think we spent three days in there. Wales, by the way, is a country in, in the United Kingdom. People may be wondering in America if I meant an actual blue whale or something. But uh, yeah, it's, it is incredible. And uh, I, I treasure the, uh, the time I spent in that part of the world. It's, um, it is amazing. Um, so Tony, you're, I, think, I think you're probably Australian by birth. Is that what I read in your notes? Yes, I'm from Australia originally. Yeah, I'm not from South Africa. Um, my wife and I came here for a holiday many years ago and just got hooked on the place and kept coming back. Great. Um, we are having the odd snag with the uh, with the audio and video, but we're going to press on and see how we get, we get on with it. And uh, uh, for now, we might be able to tidy it up in the edit. So, Tony, let me ask you straight away about your, your books then. So, <clears throat> Landscape and the region have have formed a big part of it. Just tell us about the books you've written and and the series you write. Yeah. Yeah. So I've written um, 21 novels set in Africa. They're all thrillers, generally Southern Africa. um, And that reflects my passion for this part of the world initially as a tourist. And now uh, after my books were first commercially published by Pam McMillan, I still had a a day job for a number of years. Uh, Probably after I've written about 10 novels, I was, in a position to uh, write full-time. But also by then, my wife and I had got into a routine where we were living half the year in Australia, our home country, and the other half in Africa. So the the place for me, you know, the, the continent of Africa, and in particular the southern part of Africa, is integral to my books. They're all thrillers set in, in southern Africa. And uh, I, I think the, my readership base, if I could categorise it around the world, is is often people like yourself who have maybe visited Africa or Southern Africa on safari and, and liked it, um, but certainly expatriate Southern Africans living in the US, UK, Australia, who have moved for very good reasons, but would still miss the continent. And there are a lot of my readers, interestingly enough, that I have corresponded with who may have never visited this continent. I think South Africa, in your case, the region, the, the setting is an integral part of your writing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I've written um, 21 novels, uh, thrillers, all set in Southern Africa. And uh, that reflects, you know, my journey from being a tourist. And then I was lucky enough to get commercially published uh, 
uh, through Pam McMillan Australia and then got a kind of a gig to write the Africa books because a large part of my audience is maybe people like yourself who visited Africa on a safari holiday and, and liked it. Um, but a, also a big part of my audience is the, the Southern African diaspora, people who have lived in Africa who have now maybe moved to Australia or the UK or US for very various reasons, but kind of miss their homeland. And, and there's a hunger to be reminded of that. And then there's also a, a large part of my readership base I've come across through correspondence who will just read anything set in Africa, any any novel, Wilbur Smith novel, or old Ryder Haggard novels, or John Gordon Davis. They're just fascinated by the continent. So it's almost like a, a, a sub-genre in itself. And I'm writing thrillers set in Southern Africa. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk about the books a bit more um, specifically in a moment. But I, I'm interested in how you got into writing, Tony. Was that was that your sort of professional background or you said you had another job? Uh, yeah. I was one of these little kids that all they wanted to do in life was write a book. And, uh, you know, particularly a novel. And whenever, what do you want to say? I want to write a book. They pat you on the head and say, very nice. Why don't you get a real job? You know, <laughs> like being a plumber or a diesel mechanic. I, I have, I have three Land Rovers. I should have been a diesel mechanic sometimes, I think. But this is the only thing I want, ever wanted to do. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I was, I was rubbish at things like maths and science when I was growing up. So I kind of pinned my hopes on writing in some form. And I did. Start work. I worked for a number of years as a journalist on on kind of local paper, local newspapers uh, uh, in the in Australia and the UK. I moved into public relations, which again was writing with the written word. But there was always this, you know, desire within me to write, and it, and it took a number of years until I was into my thirties when I convinced my wife that it would be a good idea for me to quit work and try and write a book. And to my surprise, she said yes. And to cut a long story short, I failed with the first novel. Although interestingly enough, it was a novel set in Australia, and it was set in the outback because I made the rookie error of thinking I'll write a book that other people overseas will want to read about Australia. And I set it in the outback, which is quite interesting because I'd never been to the outback. So I learned some very big lessons about place very early on. Um, that, that's not a good idea to just write something because you think other people want to read it, but to write something that you're interested in and passionate in. And it was after my third trip as a tourist to Africa on an extended visit that I wrote a novel set on a tour through Africa, and that got published. And, and a lot of that was due to place. Yeah. So your writing got a sort of a faltering start, I suppose you'd say. And then the thriller series, uh, which I can see on Amazon here, African Sky, I think, is one of them, isn't it? Is that, is that book one? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of series. Um, so there's a series set in Zimbabwe, African Sky and African Dawn, and then I have a, a, a couple of um, fairly strong female characters, one called Sonia Kurtz. She's in four books, starting with uh, the Delta, in fact, five books, sorry. And uh, another, uh, she's, a, she's a mercenary, a private military contractor uh, who applies her trade around Africa. And then there's another uh, series with a uh, a female detective, Sunny Van Rensburg, a South African detective, and she's the subject of a n- number of books. Again, all in the common thing is the two common things in them is they're all set in Southern Africa, and they all tend to have an environmental angle. Often looking at things like the illegal trade in wildlife, poaching um, in its various forms uh, on the African continent, which is a huge problem over here. So that's a common thread to them. That's interesting. You've got female leads. Uh, this is something I'm doing with my fourth book, which is a thriller spy book. And um, when, when I mention it, people do raise an eyebrow. And sometimes just because, you know, audience expectation, my audience is probably 55 plus males generally. 
but uh, I felt really strongly that I wanted a female lead, and I think it's absolutely you know the right thing to do for the time and place that I'm writing in in the seventies. But um, how have you found it? Yeah, look, I think you've made some very good points there. I I didn't know who my audience was when I started writing. I didn't. Um, I'm, I'm told the majority of my audience is probably is is women. Certainly, that's the majority of the feedback I get. But certainly, I I, I wouldn't be wouldn't be a high majority. I I think it's one of those things, you know, that you know write about what you know, but write the sort of books you want to write and the sort of books you like to read. I was always a big fan of Ken Follett and who, mm. who has often had a had a strong female lead character in the book. And I don't have to look too far to get real life inspiration for this. I do a bit of nonfiction as well. So I wrote a book with a retired South African general, uh, Major General Johan Uster last year called Rhino War, which is I was ghostwriting his his memoir. He had it anti-poaching in the Kruger Park. And uh uh, the the fight against rhino poaching in the Kruger Park is is carried out by South African National Parks Rangers, a large proportion of whom are women who are in combat. So while you know wow. militaries in the US and the UK and Australia were agonising over this idea of should women be in frontline combat roles or not, it's been happening here in Africa for years. And, and so I, I see real life inspiration. But I, I think uh, my female read, uh, readers tend to like those series. The males like it. I had a, a. I served in the Australian Army for a number of years. I was in Afghanistan, and uh, I served with an SAS guy over there, and, and he gave me some good feedback. He, he said, I wasn't sure when you started writing this book with a, a female lead character, you know, a, a private military contractor. Um, but he says, but then I, I started to enjoy it, and I do know some female military contractors. And he said, if she's based on a real person, do you have her phone number? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was some good feedback. A typical SAS bloke, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. That the, I mean, the poaching thing, I think we should probably just explain and talk about that a little bit of how, how big an issue it is and how violent an issue it is. And I, I hadn't, I think the moment it dawned on me was not actually in that 1990 trip, although I spent quite a lot of time in South Africa that year, but more recently in 2013, I think something like that, I, I worked in Africa doing some filming and I was in Nairobi. And I passed mm. two war memorials. Uh, what I what I thought were war memorials. They looked like war memorials with lists of names on them, with the dates that the people died, and they were they were the anti they were the force fighting poaching. And sometimes there'd be the same day and four names, and you just try to try to imagine the you know the catastrophic level of violence and ruthlessness that that the poachers have, and that and that the army or the armed forces, whatever sort of branch it is of of the forces in. The countries are up against, and that's that's something obviously you're bringing into your stories. Yeah, it goes very much to place as well too, um, because there's two things hit you. I think these days when you go on safari, number one, if it's, if it's first time safari, you're kind of blown away by the majesty and the beauty of wildlife and its natural settings, and then almost in the same breath or the same day, you'll see guys and girls in camouflage uniforms carrying assault rifles, and you say, "Well, what are they here for?" And you start to learn about it. The the illegal trade in wildlife and wildlife products is amongst the top five organized crimes in the world by value. So it is up there with drugs, people smuggling, and the illegal arms trade. Uh, wildlife crime is enormous. And and to put you know some some quick values on it, um, uh, uh, rhino horn is worth more per kilo than gold, diamonds, or cocaine. It's one of the most valuable commodities in the world and it's used in traditional Chinese medicine in certain Asian countries particularly Vietnam 
and it's also just used as a it's like a status symbol thing as well the ivory trade has been very big in the past uh my latest book vendetta uh, is actually has starts off on the coast of South Africa and deals with the practice of shark finning. So a hundred million sharks are killed each year, uh, not for for their flesh, but just for their fin, and it gives rise to some very abhorrent practices, including finning, where an unscrupulous fisherman will catch a shark, chop off the fin, and just throw the shark still alive in the water to drown. I'm sorry if if that's offensive, but that that is a real life practice because it's all based on money and greed. I've written a book about plant smuggling, James. I mean, wow. uh, there are certain species of African cycads, these wonderful Jurassic-era plants that look like a cross between a, a pine tree and a big fern, uh, that are actually the most endangered living organisms on this continent of Africa. And they also command a huge amount of money on the illegal market. This is a market fueled by nice people in sensible shoes with nice gardens you know, mm. around the world so yeah so so whether it's plants whether it's sharks whether it's rhinos whether it's elephants for their ivory the list goes i've done books about vultures being killed for the use they're used in traditional medicine here uh and i'm working on a book about pangolins so yeah it it, it it it's it's huge it it gives you a setting here in africa that has this contrast as i said between amazing natural beauty yet you're also in the midst of of a war, if you want to call it that. I mean, I hear the South African National Park's helicopter often, particularly on full moon nights, because that's the favourite time of poachers. And and I've worked that into novels in the past because that's the reality of where where we live here. Wow, it is uh, it is quite some the 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 market for like the shark fin stuff and the rider horn. Is this still China places like that? Yeah, it, it, what's happened is uh, it's 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 really interesting. You know, markets change, you know, and demand changes over time. A lot of rhino horn, funnily enough, used to go uh, to the Horn of Africa, to Yemen, uh, back in the um, 60s and 70s, where it was actually used, rhino horn was used to make uh, ornamental dagger handles. And that market dried up, you know, certainly because of all of the unrest and civil war going on in Yemen. In the Asian sphere, uh, what's happened is... It, it, these these things they come in in phases. You know, elephants used to be killed by white colonial settlers in Africa to make things like billiard balls and pianos. Now, clearly, no child would want to learn the piano today if they knew an elephant had to be killed to make it. So demand changes and standards change and norms change. China is not necessarily a big market for some of these products, but you can look at a case in point in Vietnam, which obviously struggled for many years during decades of warfare against the French and the Americans. And was a very poor country for a number of years, but now has emerged as a bit of a tiger economy. And Vietnam has a high ethnic Chinese population who now, at last, have enough money to afford, uh, you know, it's uh, like rhino horn or perhaps carved ivory uh, figurines and things. And so while people in mainland China might have moved on from that, uh, there are emerging economies for, for these products that all of a sudden have a bit of wealth and there's been this kind of traditional prizing of, of, of products like this. Um, in traditional medicine, it's not just Asia. Within Africa, uh, as I said, things like vultures uh, are killed for use in traditional medicine. And it's something I've explored too um, in, in, the, in my second last novel, Blood Trail, uh, which is all about beliefs and, and traditional medicine and traditional beliefs here because they do have an impact on wildlife. Certain mm. plants and certain animals are 
used in traditional medicine. And then you start examining belief systems and it, and it can be very easy to sort of point the finger in people and say, oh, that's nonsense. Yet if you, if you look into all of our belief systems, we all um, have strong beliefs and, and, and quite often uh, people in what they call high risk, high reward situations uh, will fall back on religion and superstition and beliefs. So just as uh, some Christian people might carry a, a St. Christopher medal or have a lucky talisman if they're a, a, an airman or a soldier or a sailor, uh, poachers here will go to a traditional healer and they will pay money for um, medicines or potions that they believe will uh, increase their chance of, of having a successful hunt for a rhino and will also make them invisible or impervious to bullets. And it's really interesting because you can say, well, that's nonsense. But then, um, you know, as they say, there are no atheists in foxholes and yeah. um, people turn to things like superstition and religion when the stakes are high. And, and, and that can go into sort of a setting and mindset as well, too, when you're trying to describe characters and their motivations. Yeah. So you're deep into this geography, this part of the world, this culture, and, and your books obviously feature it heavily. Do you use it as part of the marketing as well, or do you, would you find that limiting? Do you want your books to be read by a wider thriller audience? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Because yes, 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 and no to both. I would like to have a wide audience, but I, I have to accept that. Um, and I think this is an important thing: is when when you look at place, if you choose to stake your novel firmly, wholly and solely, or squarely in a particular place or time, that could be the hook. That could be what makes people buy it. And I have to accept that. That probably the majority of the people that buy my books do so because they're set in Africa. Sure, I'd like to to broaden that if I can. And and I try and broaden it by mixing up some of the locations and some of the the subject matter. So I guess it's like writing in any particular genre. You know, if you're writing in romance or you're writing in horror or sci-fi, um, there's almost a bit of a contract I find to it. And and that's what I quite often say people, don't be scared of that. It, it, it place could be the reason someone buys this book. And it's almost like you're signing up to a little contract with the reader. And, and part of that contract is they expect to be taken to that place, whether it's, you know, you're into sort of Nordic crime and you want to be taken to that part of the world or or you like a kind of a hard-bitten New York City detective or it's a, a UK crime uh, novel. It's part of the contract, I think. So it's something to, I think it can be embraced, yeah. Have you come across any, because you you weren't brought up as a little boy in that part of the world and your family don't go back a couple of generations there, do you have to work a bit harder at making sure it's authentic? Yeah, you absolutely do, 100%. And, and I, as I said, particularly as a, as, a, as a foreigner writing about somewhere different. But that, again, is not something to be uh, scared of. It, it is important to get it right, and it's important to get your descriptions of place in context, which is something I'm really keen on getting across to writers. I, I mentor some people through the writers through the Australian Society of Authors, and and it comes back, uh, I think, to to how I research anything in a book. Research is important. All of this. Sure, it's nice if you can visit a place that you want to write about, maybe on holiday, or it's an excuse for your next holiday. Say, so I want to set part of my book in this area. That's great, and that's obviously gold standard to a certain extent. But even if you go visit somewhere, uh, it's not enough just to look around and try and hope that you soak it up because place goes to things like not just the physical landscape or the built environment, it goes to the history of the place. It goes to the politics of the place. It goes to the racial and cultural mi mixture of a place. 
the people of the place and and also things like the wildlife and, and the natural environment. And and often you've got you know, what you always have to do, I in my view, is talk to people about the place you're writing. Talk to people from the place that you're writing about. Because just to Google it or just will never give you enough to make it real and will quite possibly set yourself up for a fall. So I, I talk to people and particularly if if it's I'm in the odd sort of occasion where I have to to write about a place that I I, I haven't been. The best source of research is to actually find someone who's live, living, living there or lived there recently and just ask them a few pertinent sort of questions about the area. Um, I can give you an example, if you like, of, of, of a place I wrote about. Um, I've, I've never been to the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, formerly known as Zaire, before that the Belgian Congo. It is this huge country in the middle of Africa that has about every ecosystem. I would just love to go there as a tourist, but I can't because it's sort of been in a continual state of war for about the last 40 or 50 years. And when you talk about uh, uh, rangers in action, yeah, I mean, national parks rangers uh, are regularly in gunfights and, and unfortunately killed in, in action in that part of the country because one of its key attractions is the mountain gorillas, the endangered mountain gorillas. And the mountain gorillas happen to live in the most volatile part part of that volatile country. So I want to set a book there. Now, I have seen the mountain gorillas across the border in neighbouring Rwanda and Uganda. So I could describe gorillas and I could describe the habitat, but I wanted to set part of this book in the town of Goma in the DRC and I'd never been there. So what I did, and this is why I research a lot of stuff, if I need to know something, um, I stalk people. There's, there's no nice way to say it. I get online and I look for someone who's an expert in a field or live somewhere. And I send them a little email. Hi, my name's Tony Park. I'm an author. I write novels set in Africa. Could I ask you a few questions about your trade or your profession or where you live? And I found a very intrepid lady based in Australia who worked as, um, uh, uh, she was a child of missionaries who uh, went up in the in the, what was the Belgian Congo then and then Zaire. And she goes back every year to support the people of the village where she grew up. She's an incredibly intrepid lady, incredibly brave lady. And spent a lot of time in Goma. So I just started asking her questions. What's the first thing you notice when you go into Goma? She says, you notice the big Primus beer billboard, because it's, we might pronounce it Primus, it's P-R-I-M-U-S, but right. it's pronounced Primus. It's very, very important. You have to pronounce it locally. And I work that, I could work that in. Automatically, I'm thinking, places about how people speak. You know, it's their pronunciations, it's their, their vernacular, their tone. And you notice the pre-moose billboards. First thing you see when you're driving to town. Great. Okay. What do people eat and drink? Oh, Guinness and Coca-Cola. And I said, so both Guinness and Coca-Cola are popular drinks there. She says, no, together they mix them. What? They drink. The most popular drink is to mix. And I, I can only imagine like, how, long, how long it takes for Guinness to settle after you've tipped some Coke into it. Yeah. And she says the roads are terrible, mainly because they're made of lava. So every time the volcano erupts, the, the, this, this black lava flows and solidifies, and it's like really bumpy tarmac, and that's what the roads are made out of. And lots of people have these really elaborate homemade wooden scooters. So I'm frantically making notes, and I put all this in a book. I wrote a book called Safari that has uh, about hunters and poachers and has a few scenes set in Ghana. So Stephen King has this wonderful um, saying in On Writing, which is, to me, mm. the best book ever written about writing, and that is a few well-chosen details will stand for the rest. Yes. Whether you're describing a place or a person or dress, or, and I live by that. Yeah. A few well-chosen details will stand for the rest. So I run a little scene with someone in a bar ordering a Primus. No, it's pronounced Primus, says the bartender. 
and he's turned right at the big billboard to get to this bar. And outside, there's a, a elaborate wooden scooter going down the, the black tar, bumpy tar road, which is actually a lava flow. And and he's drinking, and he orders a Guinness and Coca Cola. Well, I have had so many people, James, who've emailed me over the years saying, "When were you in Goma? Mm. I was there." And I have to confess that, unfortunately, with all the travels I've done in Africa, I've never been there. Now, I wouldn't have got any of that from. I wouldn't have got any of that from, you know, watching a doco, a documentary or something mm. in the DRC. So, yeah, I rely on people. And then when I write my novels, I always have a few uh, friends who will read them. For, I guess you would almost call it these days like a sensitivity check to mm. make sure I'm getting stuff right, um, particularly when it comes to writing characters from different cultural backgrounds. The way they speak, the way they address each other is, is incredibly important, but they're, they're also checking my locations and things as well and accuracy. And that's why place comes to to people and language and culture and forms of address. Uh, I made an, a, a mistake that was picked up before it was published in a book called African Dawn, set in Zimbabwe, where I got out my um, Shona is one of the, the two languages, Shona and Endemir. I got out my Shona f- phrase book and it said, good morning is the, or hello, the word for hello is Kanjan. So I've got a, a, a younger female character character addressing uh, an older male character by Kanjan Joseph, whatever. Anyway, so I was lucky enough to have uh, a Zimbabwean uh, friend of mine, um, Taku Mbudzi. She lives in, she's an actress who lives in Australia. And I met her and I said, oh, do you want to read this before it gets published? And she did. And she's going, you cannot do that. You cannot have someone younger than an older person saying Kanjan Joseph. You have to say Mangwanani Baba, which is a uh. formal way of saying good morning, fa- good morning, father. Now, I would never have known that as a white Australian guy unless I had help. So, yeah, research. People are the best form of research, I guess, is the most important thing that, that I've learned. Well, what works for me. Anyway. Yeah, I completely agree. Actually, even before you came up with that Stephen King quote, I was thinking about, because my, my books are set in the 60s. And so that's mm. my, my geography. That's my landscape that I need to research. And you can do so many. You could read, there's loads of books written in you know, that era. And you can watch stuff, but you're absolutely right. And that, that King quote is brilliant because I had two conversations with ex-colleagues of my dad who flew alongside him and it wasn't the big stuff. This is what squadrons were in and this is how we organized. It was the small little bits when one of them told me that they used to turn the oxygen off on the way back in their Vulcan and have a smoke. <laughs> they'd, they'd take the aircraft down to 10, <laughs> below 10,000 feet. So, I mean, you can't imagine it today in a military aircraft. And and he also mentioned that in the bar in the evening, I said, Ian, did you speak to this? He said, no, senior officers tend to be in one part of the bar. The NCOs, not NCOs, it wouldn't be in the same bar, but uh, the admin and the air traffickers were in one part and then the pilots were in another part. And that those small details about how they had a drink together in the evening, which was not, that's the stuff that suddenly is the reason why I get emails like you do saying, did you serve in the absolutely. 60s? Because that that was, you, you absolutely nailed uh, how the mess was. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's a good lesson for anybody writing either geography or, or history. It's almost the same type of thing, isn't it? Getting that environment right. It's those conversations you have and the little bits of stuff in between the very specific detail of their lives and the big picture are these little ordinary moments they wouldn't think to tell you unless you have a conversation with them. Absolutely, 100%. And the other thing I do is I research retrospectively. So I, I write a first, I'm, I'm like a, a pants, mm. you know, the particular the pants thing. And so I just write the story. And if I don't know something about a location or a place or a profession or a piece of kit or whatever, I just write a little note check to myself. And so I go through, I do my first draft, do my first check. And so when I go hunting for people or stalking people to help me with my research or getting them to check sections, I'm not... 
asking them, tell me everything you know about your job or everything there is to know about flying a helicopter or everything there is to know about the DRC. I'm just asking for some, I've got a good idea of the sorts of detail I need and I'm, and, and it's up to them to help me fill in that detail. So I'm not wasting their time either. Mm. Well, the, um, I mean, the, the scenery in the background is is an incredible one. And your covers are fantastic, by the way, uh, Tony's looking at it. And we've had Peter Rimmer's oh, daughter, Heather Stretch, on, on the show before. Um, you must know Peter Rimmer's books. I don't know whether – I think you definitely have a crossover looking at Amazon's also books. You definitely have a crossover oh, in the audience, yeah. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, yeah, and you mentioned Wilbur Smith as well. Um, you touched on this, and I do want to ask you about it again, um, that you and I are both white, uh, European, obviously original descent, Australian now, and there is a bit of a danger of writing in – because we've had so long in my lifetime, so long of looking at Africa through colonial eyes of so the Happy Valleys type image of the continent. Mm. And that does get picked up a, a lot now where you you need to be a bit more authentic and understanding what we call the real Africa, whatever you want to describe it. But this, you, you alluded to this, but this is something clear, clearly, I'm sure, keen in your mind when you're writing. Yeah, it is very much so. And and it's kind of, you know, I'm aware that, you know, people can be criticised for sort of trying to write as a particular character or appropriate sort of character, but you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. Because at the same time, I don't want to and nor should I write a book set in Africa that's just populated by white middle-aged male characters because it's not real, you know, it's not reflective of society. The other, the other thing too is um, uh, South Africa in particular, Southern Africa in general, but South Africa in particular is – is changing. It's it's a good market for books. Publishers, there is a very strong publishing industry here in, in South Africa uh, and, a, and a hunger for books as people's living standards improve and people have more leisure time and more disposable income. Um, so publishers here are looking at uh, focusing on uh, African writers, black African writers, moving into what would have been traditionally uh, genres filled by by European, by white people, you know, so romance and thrillers and uh, historical fiction and contemporary, um, contemporary crime and things like that. So I think you've got to do it. And and I think it's like anything, really. I, I don't get too head up about it because for, for me, well, I do, I take it very seriously because uh, I would put the same effort into having someone like um, – uh, my friend Taku, I've got another friend here, Tema, in um, in South Africa. She reads my novels. She works at the local airport. And I quite often get her to, to check my stuff, just as I would get my former sniper friend <laughs> to check my gun scenes, and uh, just as I would get my my Afrikaans friend from Joburg, Annalene, to, to read the books to check all my Afrikaans words that I've used and Afrikaans cultural references and things like that. So I think the same goes for... I, I, I treat writing culture the same as as I would write, um, yeah, an action scene or a, or a flying scene. If you you know if you're in that business as well, uh, just to get another fresh set of eyes, but a set of eyes that will read it sensitively as well. And when I did write this book a couple of books ago called Blood Trail, which does deal very heavily on uh, people's mindset and traditional beliefs, I was a hundred percent aware that this was like a really tricky topic to tackle to do it sensitively and and believably it was it was really interesting because um uh my publisher had a staff member who was also a traditional healer that was like her other job 
and she was able to read it um, from a perspective to to do a sensitivity check on it uh, to make sure that not only was my language correct and my settings and things like that, but the the whole idea of the story was was hopefully correct as well too. So yeah, I think it's something to be as writers we have to be aware about that. And when you write about another culture or characters from a different background, it again it, it's the importance of talking to people, but also something I talk about is getting your research right in context so it's believable. I'll give you another example. I, I read a crime novel a while ago by a very well-known, big-name crime writer. I'm certainly not going to say who it was, but there was a scene set in Sydney, which is my hometown, and it was only quite a short scene, but it's, it was the lead character was going to visit um, Sydney and, and had an interaction with a police detective in Sydney. And this police detective um, was going to meet the, the hero of the story at a yacht club after work where he was taking his son sailing. Now, this police detective lived in a suburb called Brighton, which I think is Brighton-Lessands, as we were referred to in the south of Sydney, which is on Botany Bay, and there's plenty of sailing goes on there. But for some reason, he was taking his 16-year-old son sailing at Rose Bay at the <laughs> Royal Sydney Yacht Club, which is probably the most expensive club in Sydney, in the most expensive area. So how this detective sergeant was able to afford a yacht I mean, I don't know any coppers that sail. I'm sure there are some. I'm sure there are. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, if he was an Australian detective, he'd be more likely to take his son to footy training after work. But for some reason, he left his beachside suburb to go to the most expensive marina in Sydney to go sailing with his son. They, they just so Googled his, and they Googled yeah. yacht clubs in Sydney. That one had come up and they'd used it. Or, or, or probably been there and thought, yeah. this is really nice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. going to put this in my book. But if you take that out of context, yeah, everything was kind of and a jarred. And, and and one of the things I say, but look, it's a little bit daunting, but I think it's good to keep this in the back of your mind. And we've all done it. We probably all know it. Is you you only need to read one thing that's wrong in a story, and it complete it can completely undermine the whole rest of the story because then you think if the author's got that wrong, what else have they got wrong? And so I I, I think you know getting other a fresh set of eyes, not just a fresh set of eyes, but somebody that lives or knows that area or time. Just as you mentioned, you've, you've done as well too. Is is a, is, a, is the best way, the best way to do it, and to realise is is that place is is not just what it looks like. It's it's the it's the history, the politics, the culture, the people, you know, and and all of those things go to make the place. And I think the the other thing too is it place is a handy thing for me because a, a lot of what I write, or if I'm if if I'm setting a novel in in a country like Zimbabwe, for example. Most of your listeners, many of your listeners would know, has had uh, chaotic politics for decades, you know, and and a, a lot of economic strife and political strife, and and went through num- decades of war in the sixties and seventies. Um, you can't write a novel set in Zimbabwe without touching on things like the country's recent history and its politics, because they actually affect every single thing that happens every single day. Um, often in, a, in an adverse way, and and to describe that can be difficult. And indeed, you probably don't want to put in great chunks of, chunks of history in your manuscript. If you describe the the state of uh, people's dress or the buildings, you you can give you can you can show reader that a country is doing it tough. You know that it's perhaps um, suffering through poverty or neglect rather than just saying it was a very poor country, you know, or it is a very poor country and people were doing it tough. And so I think what I tell people is when you're describing places, don't just describe, but engage those other two key elements of writing 
um, uh, dialogue and narrative as well too. So the, the way people talk and what they're talking about can set the scene for you in your particular place. Yeah. Well, Tony, before we go, I want to ask you a bit about your marketing. But what, first of all, what is your publishing position? You say you have been traditionally published, but you also self-publish? Yeah, so my situation now is I've got uh, commercial publishing contracts with Pam McMillan in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, and everywhere else around the world I, I self-publish. So I'm addicted to shows like Self-Publishing Show yeah. and other various podcasts uh, because now, you know, we find ourselves as market in the business of marketing, not just of writing. Now, I, I had been traditionally published in the UK and US, didn't do great, but I was able to get those rights back. And, and I'm telling people that I mentor today, there has never been a more exciting time to be an author than right now. And and but it it does you know put the the onus on us to to become our own masters when it comes to how we use our rights, you know, how we publish, where we publish, and and how we market our books. And and I think you know the other thing I love about this space is is people like yourselves is is the way that we can talk with each other and we can help each other on this journey. So, yeah, I'm in the business of now trying to market myself um, internationally. Yeah. And is that is that problematic sometimes with, with it being traditionally published in other territories, i.e. covers and stuff like that? Is there, do they have one cover that you don't have rights to and so on? Yeah, exactly. So I have to get my own covers done. That's part of the deal. So I, I have a cover designer here in South Africa and she does my UK, US and EU uh, covers. So I, I look after that market and they have to be different from the Pam McMillan covers in, in South Africa or Australia. So we all know whose version is is uh, getting around well. There's a there's an annoying thing that's happening on Amazon at the moment where Amazon's robots will pick up the fact that my books have been published by a different publisher mm-hmm. elsewhere in the world. And I'm forever having to send off copies of letters from my commercial publishers to Amazon via my ebook distributor to say, no, I'm allowed to do this. So it kind of, it's kind of a good thing because it works. There's some robot there yeah. trying to pick up fraud and stuff like that and piracy. Uh, but yeah, so I need to, I do my own uh, typesetting. I use Vellum to do my own typesetting of my own editions. I have my own designer to do my covers. And and yes, I'm in the business of marketing uh, through social media organically, learning about advertising, uh, newsletter, um, as much as I can. I'm driving my wife crazy at the moment because a social media consultant I've been paying has been telling me to do more reels. I'm lucky I live uh-huh. in a very content-rich part of the world yeah. here in Africa, and people do like scrolling through endless reels of lions and elephants mm-hmm. on the prowl and things like that. And my wife is currently going crazy listening to me play the same piece of music 15 times yes. over and over while I edit my reels. So. I have that. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's worked, though. It's Because I'm old, right? I'm 50. Well, I'll say old. I'm 59. I'm not that old. But I, I was a Facebook user predominantly, and uh, I was quite set in my ways. I think as a journalist, I, I think I, I know that social media, you need to be the news, not the ad most of the time. I know about writing content and stuff like that. Uh, but the consultant who I, I paid said, you know, do more, do more reels. And I'm like, what's a reel? And I had to learn. And, and once I went down that path, I've seen particularly my Instagram following has, has jumped maybe 17, 20% in the last month or so since I've just been getting in on the real bandwagon. Mm. Uh, I I sympathize with all those pain points I have as well, but uh, yeah, trying to do everything. TikTok is my one as well. And yeah, my wife, barked at me yesterday why are you playing that same bit of music over and over again so i'm editing and you, it is it is tedious but you sort of going backwards and forwards getting the uh, cuts right um 
Great. Well, Tony, it's uh, it's been really, really fun talking to you and uh, brings back some memories of my brief time in Africa, but it's an extraordinary continent and I love your enthusiasm for it. And I think probably being an outsider has made that put you in a, a better position to to retain that lifelong enthusiasm for the place where the truth is we kind of ignore the stuff on our own doorstep. We get used to it. It's only when my friends come over from the States and I give them a trip around Cambridge or London, I suddenly realise, gosh, you know, this is a really nice city <laughs> because you just ignore it. But you are there as somebody, yeah. somebody with, with it appears to me, endless enthusiasm and respect for the place. I think as someone once said, I come to it with the zealous, with the, um, with the zealousness of a convert. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, it was uh, uh, same thing. It's, a, it's an inspirational part of the world. You know, the funny thing is there's lots of problems here with crime and corruption and mm. poaching, but it's the individual stories of the individual people, the foot soldiers, the rangers, the rangers, the, the researchers, the conservationists, who have sometimes literally put in their life on the line to protect endangered species. And that doesn't happen everywhere around the world. So there's no shortage of material for the thrillers. I do love it. And I would say to anyone listening, drop me a line through my website, through tonypark.net. If you've got a question for your research about mm. Africa for your book, I'd be happy, happy to chat to you. That's a great offer. Tony, thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, James. This is the self-publishing show. There's never been a better time to be a writer. I'm very now I've pointed out this mark on my hoodie. I'm very aware of it. I think it's oil. I think it's oil. Looks well, like it might be oil. It could be oil, yeah. It's like when I was gonna say when you you know change the carburetor on your car, but obviously you wouldn't they probably don't have carburetors anymore and you wouldn't change it. So uh, I definitely wouldn't. I do do a little bit of bicycle maintenance. That's true. Like right. like Kafka. Or was that my motorcycle maintenance? Um, um it's not Kafka, but yeah, I know the, it's, it's I know the, the art, art of Zen I know what you mean. Wasn't it's, Kafka. It's definitely not Kafka, no. Um No. Anyway, anyway, um, I've got yes. something that to chat about. I mean, if anyone is uh, still listening, of course, yeah. uh, no one is listening, it's just us now. But um, I, interestingly enough, I was on the television on Monday. Um, or oh, you were? Yes. You, well, I wasn't on the television, my book was. So I had um, Chris McCausland, or is a, is a Scouse comic in the comic, probably, uh, comedian for our American friends in the UK, um, who is a very funny man. Um, and. I got a, he tweeted at me or X'd me, whatever you want to call it, a while ago saying he loved my books, which is very kind. I completely, you know, no one paid him to say that. He found them in the shops and I think he's he's blind, so he listens to them on audiobook and he, he came across them, really likes them. Anyway, I got an email maybe a month ago from uh, Welbeck saying that they'd been approached by the producers of a TV show called Between the Covers, which runs on BBC Two in the UK. And Chris was going to be a guest. And as a part of that show, they get the chance to talk about a book that that they particularly like. And Chris had said he was going to talk about The Cleaner and the Milton series, which was very nice of him. Um, again, not paid for. No, no one asked him to do it. He just likes the books. So on Monday, he went on the telly at 7 o'clock. And at, um, I was picking Freya up from school about 7.25 and looked, watched on iPlayer on my phone. And he did... He did for about 30 seconds, I um, spoke about the cleaner, which was great. Now, the interesting thing is I just discovered this morning, I just kind of check in the reports and see how books are sold this week. And I noticed a big spike on the cleaner. Um, and it went from, it was, which is quite low for me because I've not been doing much with it. It was at 7,000 in the store, in the UK store. Um, and then it jumped to 50. Um, wow. 
And so I've, I checked it out, and it has. It, it can only be. This is the ebook, so print will also have gone up. I haven't checked that yet. But that, it, the only reason for that, I've done nothing else, is the fact that it's been on this this show. And it's just interesting because, as I mentioned before on the podcast and at conferences, I I was on Breakfast News, um, yeah, five six years ago, and I didn't see any bump at all. Literally nothing. Um, so. You know, I've always been kind of sceptical about whether... That, I suppose there's a subtle difference between the author yes, being interviewed... Yes, I agree, and, yeah. And there'd be, that basically, that's a piece of self-promotion. And then somebody completely yeah. independent say, God, I love this book. This is a great book. You should read it. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, I kind of looked on Monday. I had a, actually had a book bub, and also this went on TV, and it was looking at the kind of the, uh, the royalties... Um, estimator on, on Amazon is that there is a massive bump, you know, uh, into... Yeah, you know, a good day. Yeah, several thousand pounds more than I normally would, um, and it can only be because um, Chris was kind enough to go on and tell everyone how much he likes the cleaner. So, yeah, there you go. That's Did just you light bit... your fattest cigar in the evening and lie Did back I? in your yeah. chair? <laughs> yeah, no, not exactly. Um, but yeah, well, it was then. just interesting because generally my my position has always been don't bother with that kind of thing because it doesn't really make any difference. But you know, it's has it made enough difference that in terms of the cost of hiring a PR? No, probably not, because we've tried that before and it's expensive. Yeah. And and I think is the results are questionable, should we say. Um, but for this kind of organic, wasn't asked, did it anyway, and then saw a bump. Yeah, I'm quite impressed. I think I should probably send Chris a, yeah. a bottle of whiskey or something and say thank you, because that certainly well, had send a... Up, send up a bunch of codes for all your other books. Well, yes, I could do that, couldn't I? Yeah, absolutely. But... Yeah, I never just, know what to do with all those codes you get from. No, it's true. Same, same. But no, that was, I just thought it was worth, worth mentioning. I might look into that a bit more and perhaps do a little post in the Facebook group at some point. But yeah, I thought that was uh, interesting. Interesting little yeah. uh, aside. No, it was great, and there's some great publicity shots of him holding up the book. Uh, yeah, side. yeah. Well done. Picked out your book. Obviously, likes it. You can obviously write a book. Well, I think I'm alright. Yeah, I've kind of, I've done it a little bit now, a few times. Yeah. I just said to my said to, just to act, again a funny anecdote. I was in uh, got back from America, had a cuddle with the kids, and um, something came up. What was it? Oh, I remember. Again, we're going massive off tangent, but given it's just us, the, us here, it doesn't yeah, matter. We're the only two people um, on this now. Yeah. So um, my daughter Freya has uh, been invited to an English project, and the project because she's good at English, and the the project they're supposed to do is they have to plan a book launch. It's completely random. It's like, oh, well, that's funny because that's kind of what I do. Um, and we're just saying to Freya last night that if your teacher, after looking at your project, says doesn't agree that you know she says you need to do a press release and you say you don't, um, just tell her that you asked your dad and your dad has sold six million books. And she misheard <laughs> me and said you've written six million books. And I'm like, no, I've written yeah, I've written right. about fifty books. Um, six million books would be, yeah, probably not possible. Although you know, you know, watch this space, AI and AI and all that. It's, uh, Yes. Give me, give me a couple yeah. of years, I'll get Don't that say that. Of. Don't even joke because they'll get death threats now. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right. Well, look, I think we're probably, um, probably down just to the one. I mean, lots of people come up to me and they did in the conference saying, I love the banter. I love the I banter. That's what I listen to. So, you know, yeah. the odd person says, I don't like it when you bant. But uh, most people do, this, do, do they like sound it. like that? They sound exactly like that, yeah, even though they've so. typed it into Twitter or something. Okay, yeah. that's it. Thank you very much indeed to everybody who helps put this podcast together. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, uh, particularly those who joined us this week, and Tony Park, especially our interviewee. That is it for us for this week. Don't forget, Launchpad closes on 
Wednesday, selfpublishingformula.com forward slash launchpad. And don't forget, you could get a hoodie if you sign up for uh, the live show. The next 10 people who sign up are going to get one of these beautiful scarlet hoodies sent to them. Selfpublishingformula.com forward slash SPS live. All that remains for me to say is it's a goodbye from him. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Get show notes, the podcast archive, and free resources to boost your writing career at selfpublishingshow.com. Join our thriving Facebook group at selfpublishingshow.com forward slash Facebook. Support the show at patreon.com forward slash selfpublishingshow. And join us next week for more help and inspiration so that you can make your mark as a successful indie author. Publishing is changing. So get your words into the world and join the revolution with The Self-Publishing Show. Thinking, what you're thinking about.